Hey, all right, we're live. Welcome everybody to Meeple Syrup. Uh, sitting in for Sense today, this is Nate Murray of Indiegogo, head of Indiegogo Games. Uh, co-hosts, as always, Daryl Andrews, designer of so many things, including the, oh, well, Fantasy Fantasy Sports Line, which should have news soon. And with us as well as, uh, <laughs> yeah, chilling. Uh, with us as well as John Gilmore. You know John from Dead of Winter and many other hits, including uh, Wasteland Express, which I believe I just saw a big announcement that you need to get your pre-orders in with your distributors today. So yes. uh, make sure you go ahead and do that. Guests today include Travis Chance and James. I don't know if he has a real last name. He certainly doesn't have a video, but that picture of him should be enough to tell you about his bio. Today we're going to be talking about uh, the gaming industry as well as plotting your exit, maybe when to sell, when to move on, and, and anything else you'd ask in the chat, of course. Yeah, and very relevant stuff, as uh, I'm sure we'll talk to Joshua about, but I noticed today an announcement even of... Uh, of USAopoly partnering with Codenames. So we'll have to chat a little bit about that and that partnership going on there as well. Um, and I know uh, there's different forms of finding ways to transition in this industry, if it's from uh, retail or uh, from, a, from a publisher standpoint. So we'll be chatting from different perspectives of what it means to uh, transition or quote-unquote sell out but before we do I'm curious I just want to ask these guys uh, a few questions about what games you guys have been playing let's start with John John what what have you been playing lately uh, I've been playing a bunch of the Arkham Horror LCG I'm super into that right now uh, it's really good. awesome uh, it's I really like the uh, the way that you get experience to build your deck up in between games and the the story it tells is really good Oh, Very cool. Very and how about you, Nate? What have you been playing? Oh, boy. Uh, I just went to a very small convention last weekend and played a whole lot of different stuff. Uh, Troy, uh, Castles of Burgundy for some classics. Uh, very enjoyable games of Dreamhouse were played, uh, in which I built very lovely three-story houses with matching bathrooms. <laughs> nice. It was a heck of a thing. So, yeah. Some good action. I'll play anything for a good time. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I've I've been lately. I've just uh, I I came back from Nuremberg with a few small games. So I've been playing a lot of uh, Quinto. There's a Quinto card game version now. Um, there's a cool game called Twenty One. Um, and then I got my copy of uh, the game Extreme. So I've been uh, playing those lately. Don't worry, Nate. How is Yes. Okay. <laughs> How is the I game? Got, extreme? I got it. As fun as you think. Game extreme. I like it. I like it. It adds uh, adds a okay. few more twists. You could still play the game with those cards and just ignore cool. the new symbols, but uh, it's got a, a few twists, so it adds adds some cool pressure to the game. Is is that out of uh, that's, uh, that's in process. We'll see. We'll see what happens. So, uh, but with no further ado, let's get our guests. Uh, on with us. So, for instance, uh, as already mentioned by Nate, we have Joshua Giffins with CGE Games, and we have Travis Chance uh, with Action Phase Games slash Indie Boards and Cards. I don't know exactly what to call you guys now, uh, but you do need to unmute your volumes. Uh, sorry about that. I can't do that. Booyah. Yeah. Travis, what do, we, what do we call you now? Like, oh, what's... God. 
What's your com- we're still, what company? We're still we're still working on revising the name, um, but it's it's a process. It's a lot of changes. You got you know SKUs and PSI partnerships and all this other stuff. So action phase is still a a thing, but but action phase is part of indie boards and cards. Gotcha. So we'll we'll circle around to that. Uh, but Nate, why don't uh, why don't you start us off with a, a question for Josh? All right, Josh, you now very famously run uh, SCE, but can you give us a little bit about your history in gaming and how you got to that point? Uh, or where you came from? I just appeared. I just showed up in the wilds of uh, the gaming industry. No, uh, it really it started a long time ago. So. Basically, I've been in the kind of entertainment, recreation, fun industry in some capacity for most of my working career. Uh, I worked at Disney for about three years. And then after that, I was at Toys R Us. And after that, I worked for Hasbro. Uh, And then I entered into a partnership with a game store of my own to own. And then uh, for a long time, a lot of people met me when I was helping Asmodee North America in the trade show circuit for almost three years. And then about two years ago now, I transitioned over to the sales director position for uh, Check Games Edition when we came over to handle our own publishing in North America. That's very nice. Um, Travis, why don't you tell us um, about how the Indie Boards and Cards buyout uh, came about? It was a hostile takeover. No, um, yeah, we we always knew. So Nick and I always knew from moment one that we wanted to eventually sell and work for uh, like a larger, more established uh, publisher. So what happened actually was almost a year ago at Gamma, Travis Worthington, which yes, there are two Travises. Not only are there two Travises, my middle name is Royce and his middle name is Roy, so it's super weird. Um, uh, Leaned over and just said, hey, do you want to sell your company and come work for me? After he saw me schmoozing with other people. Um, So that's a skill set I have that he kind of isn't as good at. So it was about a three-month process of negotiations, the end of which he made us kind of an offer we couldn't refuse. And so, yeah, we, we, we action phase became part of Indie Boards and Cards. Hmm. Awesome. We've been doing that since about June. Cool. I, I got to uh, encourage anyone who's watching, by the way, uh, if you're in the YouTube, uh, we really appreciate when you throw questions that way. Uh, I'm going to actually read uh, one question that we have from one of our viewers. Very excited. Nicole Hoy is watching. Uh, big fan of Nicole's writing and video. If uh, I just want to recommend Daily Worker Placement, you can check out her stuff there. Follow her on Twitter, iHeartMuseums. Uh, she actually asked a question for Josh here, and uh, she's wondering, is CG releasing Disney versions of code names? And... Uh, she asks this in love because she's excited. But is this is this uh, uh, true? And what what does that mean? So the uh, the rumor the rumors are true. I mean, it was announced by USAopoly this morning, and uh, Eric Martin put up a post on the Board Game Geek talking about it. So basically, we've entered a licensing partnership with USAopoly, and they will be publishing the Disney and Marvel versions of code names in the future. <laughs> 
So you will see it. I've seen some of the product that I can't really talk about, but it's exciting. And like I said, I mean, I come from a Disney background, so I'm super excited about it and was happy that I was able to kind of help our two companies join forces to bring this product to market. That is powerful. Some yeah. inside baseball. I tried to cut that deal for IDW uh, maybe a year ago. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought those were the two licenses to go get, and I wanted them for code name. So I totally agree with this decision. Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of like pie in the sky dreaming. I had thought about it for a long time. I was like, oh, this would be super cool. This would be really fun. And the opportunity presented itself, and it took. Uh, it was a lot of negotiation and back and forth between us and USAopoly and, and we came to an agreement and we really think that it's going to be a really strong product that, that will be good and, and reach even more, uh, more people than just the regular code names or pictures even will, will reach. So we think it's, it's going to be a positive all the way around for the industry and, and for our product line and for theirs as well. That's going to be exciting. Uh, so, you know, something interesting that you mentioned, Travis, was that you had built your company with the intention of selling out. I don't think most people in gaming do something like that. Could you talk a little more about the mindset in running a company when that's the end goal? Well, I mean, as we've all seen in recent times, the conglomeratization is that a word? Of the, the, the mergers and acquisitions aspect of things like Asmodee and, and other companies, it's, it's becoming the consolidation, that's a better way of putting it, is becoming uh, more prevalent. And I think that's largely because a lot of these small, you know, Kickstarter startup type companies really aren't that sustainable. Um, and if they are sustainable, they're sustainable in a way that it's like, they're, you know, younger guys or people who have financial backing or security um, outside of the projects themselves. Um, as anyone that's made a game probably knows, and especially if you've done it through crowdfunding or otherwise, it's pretty tough to get your name out there and to get your products in front of people, especially in an overcrowded marketplace. So we knew we had ta we knew we had skill sets that would be good for other companies um, and we just kind of wanted to, so we almost treated our, our company, we almost treated action phase like it was a resume. Uh, we, we built a small catalog, you know, Kadama is pushing toward 50,000 or something crazy units printed in a year. It's already becoming an evergreen game, um, which for us, that was a huge accomplishment. Um, and uh, yeah, we're, you know, we're, we, we knew all along that that's what we wanted to do. Uh, it was just a matter of figuring out who we had been groomed. We had been kind of not groomed. Uh, we had been uh, approached by three public, three other publishers um, about being bought out some larger, some smaller. Um, and this was the best deal for us in the end. And also we wanted to like, we wanted to come along to help reinforce things that Travis had already built. Like, you know, a lot of people don't think of indie boards and cards as being a large company, but games like Resistance and Coup have sold literally millions of copies and continue to sell 
tons and tons of copies. So we wanted to come in and try to gain as much experience as we could from uh, a guy like Travis Worthington, who, who, who did all of this on his own with no team over the course of five years. And while adding what we had learned and what we were excelling at doing to the indie boards and cards family, if you will. Hmm. Uh, who is the best game ever. <laughs> uh, Josh, we have a follow-up from Nicole. Uh, she's at, she's asking if, uh, releasing games like that, just rethemed with different IPs is selling out in, in, in your mind. So, I mean, a lot of people have already started talking about or throwing that word around, you know, selling out and cash grab and stuff like that. And I, I wanted to be clear that we, we approached it in a way that we want it to make sense and we want the product to be able to function on its own. So it's not just, it's not truly just slapping or pasting a theme onto something. So we're going to try to bring something a little bit different with each version that would, would be able to mix and interchange uh, kind of with it, the way that words and pictures mixes and interchanges with each other now. So, I mean, if there, if there's a good opportunity uh, to take, then yes. And also, I mean, a lot of people tend to forget that this is a business and this is a livelihood. So there are publishers and designers and developers and, and artists and all these other people. Like this, is, this is our job and our livelihood. While it's nice to have the idea of, oh, I'm going to make this little niche game that is going to sell a few units and keep it quote unquote pure. Like in the end, everybody needs to like pay their mortgage and, and buy food. So we made a deal that makes sense for everybody, but we don't feel as though it detracts from the game in a way that it's just reskinning and slapping on and pushing out a new product. Um, a lot of the design and development process is, is actually pretty intense for something even like Disney or Marvel. They have a lot of guidelines that, that need to be followed and a lot of restrictions that we can't do things that we, they want us to do that we're trying to fit in things that we want to do that they're, we have to work with them on. So it's, it's not as simple as writing Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse on cards <laughs> and, and calling it a day. Um, there, there's a very, very long, involved, tangled process for for even pushing out something that, on the surface, looks simple like Disney. Um, just as an example, and this is just something that you would be able to know by researching their guidelines, um, you can't change the narrative of the Disney movies by having characters interact with each, with each other that should not be interacting. So I, you can't put Elsa and Gaston on the cover because it shows those two interacting when normally they would not interact. So that would change the narrative of the Disney universe. So while it might be a cool cover, it's just not something that's possible because of their guidelines. So there, there's a lot more thought process that goes into it than I think a lot of people realize. And we're, we're trying really hard to make it a quality product, but also keep it, um, fun and exciting and interesting that that's very cool uh yeah so i mean this this kind of bridges into what question i want to ask travis I, we had a a great conversation going down at the board game base camp with like eric lang and uh peter and and travis myself and we were chatting about success what does success look like and we just heard joshua talking about how this is a business and also you know people need to be able to pay their mortgages so as we're talking about selling out and all that kind of stuff, what, how do you measure success and how is that model changing for you as you 
grow in this industry? Uh, I mean, success is, I think that's relative. You know, we were actually talking, I was over at Jeremy Salinas's house yesterday and we were talking about some smaller Kickstarter games that had kind of made a splash. And we were talking about like, oh, well, it's really successful, you know, because something's on the hotness of BGG. Um, is that success, you know, is, is money success? I mean, I definitely agree with what Josh just said, like being able to have the resources to provide opportunities for other people is like a really big thing that's important to me in this. Um, you know, the entire action phase team was luckily hired by Travis um, and we've continued to grow. You know, Daniel Solis works for us now. We're in the process of uh, potentially picking up a, a seventh team member in you know seven months, eight months, which is a really big deal. That's amazing. So for me, success. Um, I don't know. You know, I think when I started off, I was I was definitely like there was a vanity aspect to to wanting to do this. But the more and more I do that, and I think it's partially just because I've become a developer, so that means I'm much more kind of behind the scenes. It's the thankless job in the uh, in the design and publication process, as I'm sure other guys sitting here have done the work before. You know what I'm talking about. It's uh, you're fixing the games. I, I think that, that that sort of like desire to be at the forefront and have the name recognition and whatnot, it doesn't it doesn't mean as much to me now. Like for me, I want to take care of myself, my family and my friends that are working with me and the opportunity to help other talented people bring their projects and help them improve their projects and bring their projects to a larger audience. You know, I know this sounds like a bunch of altruistic BS, but it really is like a big part of what I enjoy about working in this industry. Nice. So funny thing about working in this industry, I actually know that a lot of people's kind of retirement plan slash path for extra income is to actually invest in game shops. And Josh, it looks like you did the opposite in that you were part of a game shop and then got out to do what you do now. Uh, what was the decision making behind that? I mean, honestly, it was the partnership that I was involved in. Um, I had one vision for the direction I wanted the store to go and they had a different direction and I decided that I could no longer work in that partnership setup. So I sold them back my portion of the store. So uh, if it weren't for that, I would probably still be invested in it. I mean, obviously my time has been split between my responsibilities with check games and I was taking a smaller role in the store, but uh, if it weren't for that partnership disagreement, then then I would probably still be invested, but everybody has to make the decision that's right for them. And for me, it was, it was time to move on. And, you know, I get to focus a hundred percent on, on what I do now. And I'm very happy with that. Excellent. Uh, Travis, do you feel like you talked earlier about all the, the conglomerization of companies in the industry? Uh, do you feel like that's good or bad for the industry? I think it's inevitable. I don't really, I don't really attach any sort of moral perspective to it because the there's just too, it's oversaturation. I mean, there's just, there's too many games. There's too many people making games. And, you know, you talk to guys like when we were talking to Eric Lang at Basecamp and it's like the, the, it's like a copy of a copy of a copy, right? Like the quality gets worse and worse the further you go down that spiral. 
So I think it only makes sense that companies are trying to kind of combine forces to do what they do better and on a larger stage. Um, it certainly doesn't make sense to kind of knuckle and scrape on Kickstarter and, you know, work out of your garage or whatever. If you have, if you have real true ambitions of being a publisher and what that means, um, you know, it, just because you designed a good game and, and, and you got people to give you money doesn't mean that you know anything about business or, or how to bring your game to a larger audience or how to put it in the right kind of box, et cetera. So I think it makes sense um, that, that companies are doing that. And obviously, I mean, I we wouldn't have sold our company if we felt differently. Absolutely. Uh, along the lines of, of people trying to make games and uh, finding the right partners or publishers, I'm curious if, uh, if you could kind of share, uh, Joshua, a little bit about what if someone thinks they have a good game for CGE, what would the process be like? What do you recommend to people? What are some tips for people when they're pitching games to, to you or to any publisher? Uh, to pitch games to us, really, it's as simple as uh, scheduling a time or submitting a prototype or finding me at a show to tell me that you have an idea. And really, I think that's that's the bulk of the process for most publishers that I that I know. Like coming and seeing us and telling us you have an idea. Um, make sure that your idea is make sure that your presentation of your idea is good. Um, a lot of times you'll get a bad presentation of what could be a good game, but you have no idea to know that. So know your product and what you're trying to do with it. I mean, even if it's just hand-drawn pictures on scrap cards that you've assembled, be able to show me the idea in a cohesive manner so I understand what you're trying to communicate. That, that really is the most important. Because um, I've seen the range of, of presentations from highly polished great presentation all the way to like here's some parts in this bag and this is kind of what i think i want the game to be so it's uh really hone in your idea and present it when you think it's ready to be presented don't rush it if you need to take an extra week or month or year developing it like do that i mean there's there's some games that vlada has been working on for four and five and six years that probably aren't anywhere close to being published and it just takes time to do that and then there are other games that you know, you might be able to nail nail out in about a week or two, which has happened with some of some of our other titles. So it's uh, let, let present the game when it's ready. Don't rush it to market. Don't work on a timetable because you know that you're coming to see publishers at Gen Con. If your product's not ready, it's not ready. Just wait. Absolutely. Um... Funny, coming out of the chat is a perfect question mentioning something that Travis had talked about earlier. Ryan Shun is asking, as these companies start combining and getting bigger and bigger, I believe the word we decided was conglomerization, uh, as these conglomerates move forward, do you think crowdfunding, uh, you know, like, for example, on Indiegogo, uh, will still be important in funding games? Uh, I mean, any more, I guess there's, so, so one of the biggest hurdles to overcome for like a, a more established publisher, if I may say that, that continues to use crowdfunding. So a company like Cool Mini or Not or Indie Boards and Cards, etc. you know, AG's got their ThunderQuest reboot uh, lined up for next week. Um, 
is that you already have the resources in place, so why do you have to use crowdfunding? And I think the answer is simply because it's an excellent marketing tool, because it's an opportunity to get your game out there. And you know, we you look at something like, so maybe this is a weird analogy, like you look at like the Netflix, the way Netflix does their series where they film everything, they just put it all up at once. Well, they don't get to do what normal TV shows do, right? Where they can actually respond to feedback from <coughs> from reviews and the audience, et cetera. So Kickstarter is almost allows that, right? So in, we just did a game called Delve and people hated how the, the uh, tiles looked in this game. Well, we had to scramble and, and you know, we, we updated the tiles. We thought the tiles were good. The public did not like them and it, it, it was met with some uh, controversy. And so, so we ended up updating them. Had we just put that product out without having Kickstarter, we just would have had a product that had something that people didn't like and it maybe would have been a barrier for them to to buy it. So Kickstarter allowed us the opportunity to have that real-time interaction with people to to kind of improve the project in a way that that we, as the publisher, um, didn't see. Excellent. Uh, Yeah, makes total sense. Joshua, same question to you. How do you feel about the role of Kickstarter as the companies start to get bigger? So, I mean, this has obviously been a, a very contentious issue for the last couple of years, and it, it's, it all depends on what seat you're sitting in. Um, from a player standpoint, um, it gives you a chance for the, the people that are on kind of the cutting edge of, of what's being released. It gives them a chance to interact, like Travis said, and make recommendations or feel like they've – they've kind of changed the course of the ship of the game in the water. And it's like, oh, well, I helped recommend new art or new cards or, or back at the level that lets me contribute. Um, the, on the other side, you have to think about it, like we said before. I mean, people have jobs and they do stuff. When you buy from Kickstarter, much more of the money that's being spent on those titles goes to the publisher and the designers and the artists. Um, I mean, if you buy a $50 game on Kickstarter – a much larger percentage of that $50 is actually going to the publisher where if you buy it from your local store, and I'm not saying don't buy it from your local store. I totally support local stores, but for the people that wait and buy it from local store, it's a smaller percentage of the money that goes to the publisher from that. Um, and that's not me telling you to buy from Kickstarter or buy from, uh, buy from a local store, do what your heart's going to tell you to do. Um, but for a publisher that, that has a project that might cost them, a hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars up front for printing and die costs and and art and all that stuff. Well, I would much rather have all that money up front. I mean, it's no different than uh, saving up to or getting a mortgage on a house. Well, you don't have a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand dollars for your home. Why are you borrowing it from somebody else and paying it back? I mean, it's it's a very similar similar model. Like, do I have three hundred thousand dollars to fund this print run? Well kind of but it'd make payroll real tight and we'd all be real uncomfortable or we can get positive real-time feedback and constructive criticism feedback through a campaign like travis suggested and and also get almost all of that money up front to be able to fund this print run and and maybe make the product better than it could have been initially like when you go to print the difference in card quality on a game by game basis isn't that much but when you multiply that by fifty thousand units that's a lot of money. When you talk about box quality or art quality or, or printing quality, like incremental increases on one unit is just exponentially increased when you're talking about 20 or 30 or 40,000 units. So it, it's around, it's not going anywhere. 
it's interesting to see how companies are using it and leveraging it. And I think uh, the good projects will shine, the bad projects will fail, and publishers will become more informed of how to use it and how to deliver a better quality product uh, from presentation to finished product across the board. And a lot more of them are finding ways to include and loop in the local game stores so they're not kind of left out in the cold. Mm -hmm. And I think that game stores should find ways to utilize Kickstarter to supplement what they're doing in store because a lot of them have special incentives, early releases, a lot of good packages. And that's something as a store owner that I did is I looked for those projects and I backed those projects. And the reason, another reason to do that is Kickstarter happens one time, but the tail of the sales will continue. So as an example, when Zombicide went up and so many people bought Zombicide, but after Zombicide was on Kickstarter, a lot of people were introduced to it. A lot of people were exposed to it and they were looking for it. And that's when they come to your local game store and you get the box and the expansion and the thing and all the extra promos. <clears throat> and, and that product looks really nice and really finished and a ton of stuff in the box because the success and what Kickstarter let them do with it. Absolutely. Great. Yeah, that's great, great stuff. Great uh, I, yeah. I'm going to change gears just slightly here. Uh, Travis, I'm, I'm curious. You talked about selling the company and becoming part of, you know, the, the indie family. Uh, tell us a little bit about the, the, the new hurdles of kind of adapting to a new company and what that all entails for anyone else that's thinking about maybe selling their company or looking to join. You know, what, what are some of the, the questions or conversations you had to have with Travis to figure out how to work together? Well, I mean, the biggest thing is obviously you're not your own boss anymore, right? I'm not my own boss. I answer to someone who has very different ideas, very different experiences, and a very different perspective on things. He's much more successful in, in um, many ways, and there are ways in which I am more experienced. So that, that's the hardest thing is, is – competing personalities. You know, we, we had a team of people that worked together for almost five years. We all knew each other inside out and we worked really well together. Um, bringing our whole team over and adding just that one new person in who's, who's the boss was actually like, it, it's, you know, there's a lot of growing pains involved in that. Um, in terms of other things that are difficult, I mean, I think I almost feel like everything is kind of ties to that one thing, right? Like there's a different type of accountability. There's uh, a lot of people would sell their company, go work for someone else and go, oh, I work from home, I'm remote, boss can't see me. Guess what? I'm watching Bob's Burgers for 12 hours today. Um, I'm not one of those types of people, but I could certainly see other people having a hard time kind of policing themselves and making sure that they're um, as invested as when they were an owner, which is hard, right? Like not owning the company is different. Uh, it's, 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 it's emotionally different. It's, it's structurally different. So uh, it, it makes it challenging, but, but I mean, it, it also made so many other things better, right? Like I have more time for my family. I mean, action phase would be, like we had a couple times every year where it'd be like feast or famine. We're like, holy crap, if this game doesn't do well, <laughs> guess we're not getting our quarterly payment, which was barely anything in order to do this. You know, 
if this game doesn't do well. And luckily we were smart enough and, and kind of backed the right projects uh, that the, the, the successes helped um, cover up for the failures because you're going to have failures. You're going to have failures. Uh, so it's nice to not have to like worry about tightening your belt. It's nice to be able to do things like know that you can take an airplane. And you don't have to drive to BGGCon 13 hours from Indiana to save money. <laughs> Um, there, there, there's far more amenities than there are obstacles, I think, but, but, but the, but that one obstacle, you know, Travis is a very opinionated, strong willed dude. And I am also, and he and I butt heads quite a bit, but at the end of the day, he's signing the paychecks. So it, it makes it, uh, it, it, it's an education in being an adult for sure. <laughs> Okay, that's great. Uh, another interesting question in the chat is uh, about reviews, and this definitely goes back. Josh, you gave some great feedback on crowdfunding. It sounds very obvious you're very familiar with that whole scene. Uh, paid reviews, that seems to be a trend I've noticed more, uh, especially when crowdfunding campaigns go up. What do we think about paid reviews? And that might be worth going to Josh and Travis for follow-up because it's a really interesting topic, at least to me. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess to start is, one, I would like to see concrete evidence of paid reviews. And maybe this is just me not really understanding that. Like, there's... Well, there's a difference between I mean, a free you... game and money. I think we're talking right. that... money exchanged. Well, and that's that's my point is like I personally do not know of any times that money has been exchanged for something outside of a like a professional overview of a game, which you need something to be written anyway. And you're trying to get a get name recognition or uh, get your product seen or whatever that is. I mean, it's is it very different than watching paid actors talk about, you know, gum or whatever else it is so the the paid money changing hands part of it i'm not familiar with if that is happening please send me a list of people that are doing that not because i want to do it but i just want to know who those are because i see paid reviews thrown out a lot but there's never anybody in actual concrete information attached to it but i'll speak on it like if it is happening well it's going to happen and if you know it's happening then maybe you just discount that review because it is paid if it's like some overwhelmingly glowing review and you know a hundred percent for a fact that they got paid money, but the speculation of paid reviews where, Oh, well they got a review copy of the game. Well, yes, of course they need a copy of the game to be able to talk about it um, or something like that. Like that, in my opinion, that's very different. So it's, it's a touchy subject that I don't feel like there's enough concrete evidence for me to really speak negatively on because right now it seems like a lot of conjecture to me, if that makes sense. Uh, and, do you want to yeah, follow up? Maybe follow what do you think? Um, I mean, I, I, I certainly there are paid previews, and I know those are different than reviews. Um, I, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I certainly think that there are, is the opportunity for people to take money to do reviews, um, and you know, to say that there is no bias even outside of money is I think spitting in the face of human nature. Uh, I certainly think that there are 
some reviewers that have better relationships with certain publishers and they might, you know, not come down as hard as on them as for a game that they didn't like or just might not do a review. I, I don't have as much of a, sorry, I'm kind of zigging here. I don't have as much of a problem. You know, like I see guys like Rado get beat up all the time online. Like, why don't you ever do negative reviews? Well, why the hell when he's doing it, he's doing it for free. You know, he has a Kickstarter. I'm, he's someone that we work with. He does it for free. Why in God's name would he spend his time playing something he doesn't like and then talking about it and then sharing it with people, right? Like it doesn't really make very much sense. Um, it doesn't really do anyone any good either. But yeah, I don't know. Sorry, this makes me a little uncomfortable. Um, there, there, <laughs> there's certainly, I think there's certainly instances of it that, that occur, though not at, not like rampantly so. And, and kind of to take over for Travis because he he definitely is uncomfortable. I know Travis and he doesn't get uncomfortable very much, but uh, <laughs> like I said, it, if there was a more concrete evidence of this instead of speculation. But again, like Travis was saying, yeah, I, I also like. Don't like it. I I can weigh in as a former publisher that sometimes, you know, stipping somebody not for a good review, but hey, I know you got sent twenty eight games this month what's it take to get mine to the front, even if you say you don't like it, is a conversation that I've definitely had. So it, it, there, yeah, there's I, different ways to, you know, you never, I've, I've never done a thing where it's like, you know, I want this for positive, but certainly there's been ways to check in to say, hey, I know you're running a crowdfunding campaign soon. If I throw you a promo, can one of my games get reviewed earlier or something like that? Because reviewers at this point, if they're good, are getting 36, 48 games a month. And you can't wait three months for your name to get reviewed. So sometimes you got to figure out a way to jump the line. Well, I certainly have no problem with reviewers being compensated for their time. They provide a service and it's a very worthwhile service. And the ones that have an audience, that's, you know, you're, you're, you're getting access to those people. Um, these, these, a lot of these pe people are tastemakers. So I, I think it's, um, I, I think that there's nothing wrong with that. I've had people tell me like, oh, you shouldn't get paid for what you do because it's fun. And then, you know, I visited them in the emergency room after I punched them in the throat right afterward. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, I'm kidding. Uh, that was a bad joke. Uh, um, he didn't visit. He didn't visit. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I guess I don't see what the, the, the problem is. I mean, a person being told to say something is one thing. A person being paid to push – I mean, we paid for Dell or for uh, Trickster. You know, the person that was supposed to do our review fell through, and, and I had to overnight lance uh, Undead Viking uh, the, the game, and I'm like, what will it cost for you to make this tomorrow? And, you know, we, I had right. to pay a rush fee. And I think that is 100% reasonable for him to drop everything he's doing in order to get that done. Um, yeah, so absolutely. I don't think that there's that, that in any way puts my integrity into question or his, you know. I mean, no, I like you said, you're already you're, – you're compensating for the work. And you're, you're, it's just as much work as anyone else. And there's a skill set. And they've grown their audience as well. And it's just a matter of being open about, you know, what services are offered. Uh, Nicole, for example, is saying, you know, she, she says at the end of her videos, you know, games are provided by or things like that. So there's lots of ways for people to be open and honest about the service they offer. 
even saying that you offer those services, some reviewers will say, you know, contact us if you want a preview or things like that. So uh, absolutely. I, I'm going to actually change gears uh, a little bit and uh, jump back to, to Joshua on uh, on conventions. Uh, you you work this, You've been working the circuit for a long time, and I, I'm curious if you could talk into the importance for publishers to have presence at conventions and the importance of things like having a booth or what other things are happening at conventions, even behind the scenes. Uh, some people don't know, or, you know, they're a new designer and they're trying to, trying to decide if, if they need to be at convention. Uh, for me and my advice, uh, because conventions range from everything from Gen Con and Essen to the local smaller conventions that Nate was talking about, he went to this weekend. Um, and really you need to go in with an expectation of what you're trying to get out of it. Are you trying to sell your game in a booth? Are you trying to meet new publishers? Are you trying to find artists? So you definitely want to go to each convention with kind of a mission and a plan. I mean, for me as a publisher, you know, working with Asmodee before and now with Czech games running the booths and the, the convention presence, it's, I mean, I know what my objective is and my agenda is, so I plan my experience around that, where if I were a designer, my convention experience would be very different. And if my if I were an artist or whatever, my, my experience would be yet again even different. So I think understanding kind of your plan of attack for what you're trying to do and what you're trying to accomplish is, is probably the most important because there's a lot of stuff that happens on the show floor, but there's a lot of things that happen after hours, whether it's, you know, at big bar on two at origins or it's at one of the dozen restaurants in indianapolis or one of the hotels or wherever like there's always people doing stuff so figuring out what it is you're trying to accomplish for your project for that show is is really most important yeah i think so travis what do you think is most important at a show i know you mentioned that most of them are losers as far as cash is concerned so doing the circuit isn't that but is it meeting designers for future projects like you have live now or is it yeah you know just getting your brand out what's what's the biggest thing that you come home and say yep good show so my mute my mutant power is i i, I talk to people and i'm able to suss out potential opportunities and those things could be from a getting a game to collaborating on something to a license to finding a new artist to improving a relationship with a distributor or a retailer. Um, so, you know, J Josh is one of these guys that I see, oh God, we probably see each other close to 20 times a year because we go to everything. He goes to more things than me and I go, I'm, I'm gone like 20 weekends a year. So <laughs> that's not counting trade shows. Um, mm -hmm. So, I think for me, what I try and do is I just try to keep an ear to the ground. I, but I also try and, and, and one maintain the relationships that I've built with, with friends and, and, and uh, peers and um, people that we might work with, you know, collaborate with, but also to try to establish new relationships, you know, like actual relationships, meaningful relationships, not just the best way to network is to not, be a scumbag and try to push your agenda on other people. You know, as Daryl knows, I went to Toronto to his retreat. I hung out with Eric Lang for five days, stayed across the street from him 
four or five days or whatever. And I might've brought up working together on a game once. And I think it was like a joke whenever I brought it up, it was like making jest of the fact that we weren't talking about work. So like the best way to, to, to network is to not, is to just be chill, I think. So if you're, if you're looking for advice when you're at a con, if you try to come up with like a scripted speech and jam that in someone's face over and over again, you're not gonna get very far. Yeah, I think that's really good advice sure. in general in the industry. Uh, Joshua, how do you feel uh, CGE's role as far as like conglomeration uh, goes? Do you see them more continuing to build their own brand or in the future looking to acquire other smaller publishers? I, for right now, I know that we are happy with the way that our business is running and progressing. And even though we've been in business for 10 years, we've just started public like distributing our, our own titles in the US, uh, not even just uh, two years ago. So we still have a lot of room to grow here in the States um, where we use co-publishing partners before. So it, we are not looking to absorb other companies into our company. We we like where we are and what we're doing and the pace that we do them at. We, we put out three or four new items a year between games and expansions and we're happy at that pace and we're able to focus on those titles and do that and once you start adding other companies and other agendas and other publications and stuff into your catalog it it kind of splits and fractures um what you're able to focus on um just as an example we had some 2f games in our catalog that we were distributing for 2f but and i was very upfront and honest with uh with peter to talk back to friedman is like We'll carry them, but my focus is going to be on the Czech Games titles. And Friedman entered an agreement with uh, Bonacore at Stronghold at the end of last year to where Stronghold's going to take over all the publication rights. And I just wanted to be upfront with the people is like, you know what? I know what our game's main drive is, and that's what I'm going to focus on. Like, it's tough to focus and, and really push a dozen games, much less 30 or 40 games plus another 10 or 12 from another publisher. So I think it's important that people understand that they need to stay focused and, and push their title. I'm, I'm very much in the camp of less is more. I'd rather have fewer titles that I can spend more time marketing and showing and, and demoing at shows and, and pushing sales and building a base under instead of, well, let's see what the special of the week is and get, and then scrap that and move on to the next one. Mm -hmm. Uh, a follow-up question. This year, you guys did pre-orders for Gen Con, uh, which is great. It was awesome being able to pre-order Codename Pictures and just showing up at some time during the con to pick it up instead of rushing. Is that a thing you're going to continue doing? We also we also did that the year before, and we, we have no plans on changing that. We do that for um, – I think that we did it for Origins as well. I can't remember. But, I mean, for Gen Con, definitely that is our plan, and it's – Tell us what games you want. And that honestly helps me figure out how many games to bring. Um, a lot of this is people will say, well, how didn't you know that it was going to sell out? Well, honestly, the first year at Gen Con with the first release of Codenames, we brought 800 units, which was four times the amount of any other game that I've ever been involved with bringing to, to a show, like as a big release. Even Asmodee doesn't bring that many of some titles. So it, it's very hard to gauge interest sometimes on stuff and – I mean, we could have sold out that very first day and I had to limit it. So 
and that game was even open to pre-orders and we had very few pre-orders so it's it's a system that we have in place and i think more people are becoming familiar with it and that we do it so tell me what you want to buy and i'll bring it it's that easy <laughs> yeah um so yeah we we plan on continuing that into the future like i said i think that we did it for origins if not we probably will this year plus gen con we do it for Essen as well for the three big main shows um so yeah it's it's an easy process yeah it's, it's great as a consumer yeah and you don't even pay me till you get there <laughs> you're doing and not collecting money first yeah wow i'm a baller man <laughs> man that's nice their system yeah, and and honestly, the the different right. like, something like code names will get a whole bunch of pre-orders, but then some of our other stuff like Galaxy Trucker and things like that, it'll get two or three. But that helps me know that oh, well, maybe I should bring a couple of them because we have a few pre-orders, and then I'll bring a few extras for walk-in sales that that see the game. So it kind of helps me gauge interest on the. <clears throat> really, it's more about gauging interest on the less featured titles mm -hmm. to know what to bring of that because that's really where you can kind of get caught off guard. Is like oh well. I didn't know that I was going to be able to sell 10 copies of Shipyard at Gen Con if only I had a pre-order system and knew that. <laughs> Absolutely. I've, I've personally appreciated it each year. So uh, I I am curious, uh, Travis, I mean, you mentioned you go to so many shows and, uh, and often have a very busy booth and, it, and uh, do well at shows. I'm curious if you could share some tips, especially for, uh, newer publishers that you you know maybe it's their first time they're getting a ten by ten booth. You did the grind. You started, you know, showing up uh, and working your you know your reputation and working getting the better spots. Some advice for people as uh, as they're starting out uh, at these conventions. Which shows should they go to? What should they do? Okay, well, which shows you should go to? I think that kind of loops back to. The question you asked Josh about what what's your plan, what's your purpose, right? Um, you know, having a booth being tied to a booth, especially when you're on like a skeleton crew because you're a smaller company, is it's rough, man. I I the two Gen Cons in a row, I had no voice. Uh, you know, sick, exhausted from basically being a carnival barker nonstop in the booth, um, and I, I don't do that anymore, but. Uh, I think you got to hustle, man. Like there's, there's a thousand other people out there that you're fighting against <laughs> trying to get the dollar, you know, get the, these dollars out of them. So you need to really like your passion and your, your fervor need to be more than the guy in the booth next to you. When I go to Gen Con, I see these people that just have like a sad little, sign hanging behind them and they're like texting and they, you know, they don't have anything to sell or they have something to sell, but they're not really trying very hard. You know, Gen Con is hard to get into. It's really hard. There's a long, long waiting list. And um, if you're going to, if you're lucky enough to get a booth there, you really need to, I think you got to kind of earn it. I hate this. Maybe that sounds a little presumptuous, but there's a lot of other people that would probably fight tooth and nail to be in that booth working their ass off to, to have a shot at people seeing what they do. Uh, you know, we've been very fortunate. Um, we're Gen Con's like Gen Con's a show where bigger companies, some bigger companies lose money. Like we've been a, a company that has made money continually year after year and more money at shows like Gen Con origins, but you know, smaller shows, not so much, you know, um, we go to those to look for games, interact with the public, 
see friends, you know, it's always nice to see, uh, like your con family. Uh, if you're, if you're like heavily into the circuit, like Josh and I are, it's nice to be able to meet up with people and kind of pick up where you left off, which is usually like two weeks prior. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, if, if you're in the booth, I think you gotta, you gotta work. Don't get a booth if you don't have something to sell. Don't, don't be in a booth with pre-orders. Uh, it's just not really worth your time. If you're going to a show, kind of like what you used to do, Daryl, where you're pitching, you know, set up appointments beforehand. Um, and, and I think even if you set up appointments, stop by a booth and just see if somebody has a, a minute to talk to you because you never know. I mean, I've signed a half dozen games from people I didn't know existed because they just randomly stopped by and said, hey, would you take, take a minute to look at my game? So, And see. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, that's a perfect segue. Um, Josh, you already mentioned that uh, you, you're as simple to set an appointment with as just saying, hey, let's set up a time. So, you know, for these new designers who are now going to take you up on that and flood your inbox requesting meetings at shows, um, what advice would you give to new de designers? Uh, like I said before, make sure, make sure your stuff is ready to be shown and make sure that you know how to show it. There's a difference between knowing your mm -hmm. game and how to, how to tell somebody all the rules, but you need to be able to present your game and pitch your game. Um, but yeah, setting up an appointment is super easy. I mean, you just send it, send a request through our, through our general support email system and it gets filtered to the right person for the right show and the right time and whatever. Most likely it'll be back to me to, to set up with you. But when, when you're actually there in person, like make sure you know what you're mm -hmm. doing. Like that's important. Practice selling it to your friends, practice selling it to your other design partners, practice selling it to your local game <laughs> store guy. Like if you can't pitch it in your local game store as like even just to get excited about you're making a project to whoever's there, then maybe you need to to work on it a bit more to get it ready. Like I said, the most important thing is make sure it's ready, make sure you know how to present it. <laughs> Excellent advice. Uh, and Travis, same question to you. You covered a lot of stuff in the previous two questions, but what would be one more piece of advice that you would give to new designers? Is that a nice way of saying I talk too long? No, no, no. Just uh, you had already kind of mentioned, you know, be polite and treat it like a business. And yeah, you know, like I said, I think, I think booth and let publishers come to them. Is that a good? If you're, if you are, you know, in the company of how do I say this? That doesn't sound arrogant. If you're in the company of if you're an amateur, if you're new to this and you know, you're hanging out with more notable folks in the industry. Like I said, I really think the best way to make a lasting impression is not to try to shill your wares on them. Like if you happen to end up at a dinner and you're sitting next to Stephen Bonacore, Mike Fitzgerald, like, you will gain so much more just by talking to them like a, a person instead of saying, Hey, guess what? I have a, a game. I have a bad prototype in my bag. Can I force you into an awkward situation where I, you pretend to give a damn for a few minutes? Like that, that is a really like, I think that has been a, an instrumental part of my, my personal success is that I value relationships and, and the interactions that I have with people. Um, but, but at the same time, you, you do need to know when you got your shot, right? Like an opening happens and there is that, there is that moment where you can, where you can share your, what you're working on, you know, take it, don't be afraid. Uh, just don't be pushy. Um, I mean, I, 
I decided to do this in 2010. I was a bartender living in New York City, and I just w woke up one day and was like, I want to make games. And I designed a game. I found a game design group in New York and listened. And I basically just did a bunch of research. I went to as many shows as I could, and I just talked to people, and I tried to gather as much information as I could. And it's not just about who you know. It's about who knows you, right? So you want to make sure that, you know, this ties back to the building equitable relationship things. Sure, you can go up, you know, a guy like Josh um, is saying he'll be generous with his time, but, you know, like at a show like Essen, I was booked 10, I was booked, no joke, about 10 hours of every day. Um, and that didn't count impromptu meetings, that didn't count, like, let's go get a drink, and then that ended up turning into work stuff. So having a, having a plan and having some appointments, I think, like I said, is good. Uh, having, like Josh said, having your 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 stuff in order, like your prototype nice or sell sheets, uh, a pitch ready, you know, know what you want to talk about with your game. Every when you sit down and you just try to tell someone, hey, you're oh, here's my game. It's really different. It's really innovative. Well, guess what? I hear that a hundred times a day, um, and how, you know how often that's true. Uh, mostly zero times a day. Uh, so <laughs> so don't don't lead with that either. Good stuff. Uh, always fantastic. Uh, if if you have the chance to talk to these guys uh, at conventions and whatnot, please don't hesitate. You can find them online as well. Uh, Joshua and Travis are both have been very kind to me, and I've appreciated just uh, the wisdom and uh, friendship that uh, that I've gained from them. So I uh, just uh, I just want to say thank you to our viewers. Thank you uh, for contributing great questions and having a great discussion on the YouTube. Uh, we're going to uh, just wrap it up now. This was episode 99, so please uh, tune in with us next week where we have episode 100. Very excited. Um, Sen should be back. Uh, Dylan should be back, and I have no idea who the guests are, uh, but uh, it should be a great episode. So uh, stay tuned until then. Uh, until then, just keep making great games. We look forward to playing your game soon. Adios, amigos.